We're doing the podcast. How yee-haw! Knoxville. Three Rivers Angler and Dorsal Outdoors are bringing the Fly Fishing Film Tour to Yeehaw Brewing on June 4th. Fly Fishing Film Tour is a traveling roadshow of the best fly fishing films in the world, and they're being brought to the outdoor big screen at Yeehaw Brewing on June the 4th. Come for the action, stay for the camaraderie, all while helping to raise money for the local waters that we all love. So get ready to kick back, drink a Yeehaw beer or a mocktail, and enjoy some of the best outdoor cinematography in the world. That's 2 p.m. June 4th, Yeehaw Brewing. Tickets are available at flyfilmtour.com or in person at Three Rivers Angler in Knoxville. But wait, there's more. Also at Yeehaw, on June 4th, after the F3T screening, Perpetual Groove makes their return to the stage in Knoxville. Bringing their retina burning light show and tight jammy grooves, P-Groove is sure to melt some face. That's Yeehaw Brewing on Sunday, June 4th. Doors are at 6.30. Show is at 7. Visit bornandraisenox.com for tickets. That's bornandraisenox.com for tickets. See you there. It's showtime. Yeah, I think the only thing I can't talk about is the budget. Okay. That's the only thing. Like the exact number. I can say yeah. it's low budget or medium budget or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, that was like the one thing the lawyer told me, not for this, but like a year ago, once I told him what the number was, he's like, I'm the last person you tell that to. Oh, like, really? Cool. cool. It's low. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, yeah, don't tell people that because you made something pretty cool for very little. You yeah. Know? <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. I don't like to talk about money anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Any, any, anything else? No. Off limits? Nope. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, yeah, you can you can talk about anything you want to drop drop whatever language it doesn't doesn't matter. People people don't care. My grandmother listens, but she's cool as hell. So yeah, you know. Let's see. Are we? We're going. We're up. Sweet. Christopher Mitchell. Yes, sir. How are you? Doing all right. Well, uh, since I quit recording intros for the show, do you want to just uh, tell people uh, what you do and who you are? Sure, sure. Um, I'm Christopher Mitchell. I live here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm a director and a DP. That's that's a lot. People don't understand, I think, uh, how a lot of people double up on that role around here. Uh, And I think it's almost by necessity that that we do that because uh, a lot of times – you know, you're already around the camera. You know where the camera wants to be. And if you have a strong gaffer as a director, you can DP as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially if you have someone you can. Um, I've worked with uh, Steve Spallone for many, many years. He's a great gaffer in town. Sure. And um, he knows what I want and knows how I like to do things. And I also can. Uh, give him a suggestion like, hey, let's put this 1200 out the window. And he's probably got a better idea than I do. Right. Like, oh, you'd be easier if we do this. Don't even tell me, Steve. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and that's an, another thing is I think that gaffers in our marketplace in particular, 
really dig into kind of DP territory sometimes, especially when it comes to lighting plans. Oh, absolutely. Because we have a lot of we have a lot of really strong gaffers that have been key grips before that but by necessity of working in this marketplace for as long as a lot of them have worked, you end up wearing a lot of different hats. And so if you can wear a couple of different hats in a really strong way and everybody can kind of lean into each other's uh, lane a little bit, you guys can accomplish a lot more together. Absolutely. And, you know, it's Knoxville is a weird area and you've got people like Steve Splone, Mike Gallagher, who come into this market, who have done huge things, you know, last the Mohicans, you know, and Cape Fear and are here in Knoxville. And you can learn just by being around them, you know, and they can give so much more to the image and an idea. And I like to keep it open with my gaffer and be like, if they come to me, it's like, hey, if you come over here and get to bring the camera down just a little bit, you know, you could get this and that and so on. Yes, Steve, that's a great idea. Let's do it. I love when a when a, a, a gaffer or if I'm directing and, and not DPing, if a, if a DP comes to me and and has a suggestion for where to put the camera to help me, I'm all ears, man. And and, and it, you know, a lot of people might think that. Uh, a lot of people might think that they're getting their toes stepped on a little bit, but I feel like that open dialogue of maybe getting out of your lane just a little bit and saying, yes, this idea is awesome, but I think it helps both of us if you truck that camera two steps to the right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, you know, being a DP, it's not just this image. It's how much time do we have? We've right. got to move forward. What's next? What's uh, in two hours? What's what is the next scene? Not just this scene. And to have someone else who is you know ahead of you lighting and who can walk into a moment while you're thinking what's next, he might see something in the moment of it would be better if you just had them turn just a little bit. And they're usually right. Yep. So how do you delineate between the director and the DP role if you were going to explain it to a lay person? Mm -hmm. So the director usually focuses a lot on the story, right? Then you got to make sure the story is happening. And also you have to be able to um, lead, you know, you need to be able to lead your crew every department. You are having a thousand questions coming at you constantly. You know, is it – Hey, do you like this shirt? Do you like these shoes? Um, or, hey, we don't have this thing, you know, or it's not working so we can't shoot a shot of the tape player recording. What can we do to fix that? So a lot of times on set, not with just a story, you're a problem solver, you know, and you're also setting up the shot, setting up the camera, talking to actors, doing all those things. But mainly the job is to keep the train on the tracks. Yeah, the the most succinct way I've I've heard it put is the director is the keeper of the story. Exactly. In a at least from a creative mm-hmm. standpoint. There's a lot that goes into that and that's why people ask you questions like what color shirt would this character wear? Yeah. So what about a DP? So, you know, with the DP you're really dealing with also the story, but the visual part of it. You know, you're working closely with your director who's helping set up find those shots that they want and you want this moment of being a tight and you're trying to work with them and your gaffer and your team to accomplish what the director needs for the story. So a lot of it, once again, is problem solving and trying to figure out how can I fit this camera in this trunk of the car to get this shot or whatever and still make it look good, not just practical. 
Yes. I'll, the, one of the, uh, one of the things that I always try to do when I'm DPing is, is uh, at least a mind from a mindset standpoint is I want to serve the director. I want, I want to serve them in, uh, in a way, uh, that achieves what they want, but I also want to plus what they have in mind. I want to make it better. I want to, I want to give them what they want. And then I want to give, and then I want to offer them other things. Exactly. If I have an idea, and it might be the right idea. Yeah. It might be the wrong idea, but I at least want to offer it. And, you know, half the time it might not be right, but at, at least I, I, at least I thought to, you know, at least I thought to put it out there. And I think that that mentality seems to, it seems to help all departments. That seems to be a good mentality to, to always have. And, but I think the, one of the things that to me has to be in place first is proficiency at your, at your role. You have to, you have to give your, your boss (laughs) in air quotes, what they said they wanted in a timely manner. Yeah. And then be able to then say, what if I do this? Do you like that better? No, cool. We'll go back to that real quick. Oh, you do like that better. Okay, let me make a couple changes and we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a fine balance. And you know, one thing I always like to do in when I'm directing, I love to see it is when I'm off talking to someone if I'm directing is is the DP around. You know, are they near where I am and listening in and trying to figure out what the next steps are? Cuz mm. you always want to be one step ahead. So you're you're hearing it without having to be told like, okay, I'm hearing that we're going to make a change here and here's why I'm going to go ahead and start moving forward with that. And to try to make that director's life slightly easier because they are getting bombarded constantly with every question on set and from offset. Have you ever worked with a – if you're directing, have you ever worked with a a DP who tried to assert their vision too much – does that ever happen? Does that ever happen? Do you ever run into that where uh, there's not a necessarily a power struggle, but where you're not able to communicate well enough and they don't understand, they don't maybe don't believe in your vision enough, or maybe it's an ego thing where they want to put their thumbprint all over it. Have you ever had that situation happen? I haven't, at least in the form of like an ego or like trying to put their thumbprint on. I, I've been very fortunate with that. I've always been able to work really well with all my DPs that I've worked with. I think sometimes they may not, because I was a DP first and then moved into a directing role and I, I still go back and forth all the time. Um, I can visualize it and explain it in their language of the mm-hmm. DP that it usually gets across pretty quickly. But if yeah. it doesn't, I can literally ask the DP, do you mind if I put my hands on, you know, can I touch the camera? And yeah. this is what I'm thinking. And usually like, oh, okay, got it. And maybe I just wasn't explaining it correctly. And I just showed them quickly, you know. So I've been real fortunate that I just haven't ran into a lot of problems working with DPs, at least with – um you know, with uh, creating the vision that we need to create. You know, I think that might be because you know what you're doing. And <laughs> and a lot of times there's blood in the water in some situations mm-hmm. when people think they're working with someone who might not be doing it right. Yeah. They, you know, they like to say, man, this, this guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but it seems like you have a good enough relationship with the guys that you work with to yeah. where – and you know what you're, you know what you're doing because you've done both roles – and when you've been doing it, you know, I'm sure close to 20 years now, 15. Uh, about 
17, 18 years. Yeah. yeah. It's almost 20. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you learn shit by then. Oh, if yeah. you're still doing it by now, you're obviously good. And so I think it might you get, it seems to get easier because you get more, you get more respect on set. Even yeah. when you're working with the, the journeymen who have been doing it for 40 years, mm-hmm. they know that you know what you're talking about. And I've seen things get easier for me recently, probably over the last five years, because yeah. you you speak the same language as the gaffer and they, they vibe check you immediately and know that you know what you're talking about. And if you do things right, you do things by protocol, then it then then this this ship sails smoothly which is what we're all what we're all after oh yeah i mean you know how it is i mean you have to shoot these things like the like the cops are chasing you right so if you don't have that relationship that cohesiveness with everybody um it can just fall apart so quickly. Shoot it like the cops are chasing you? Yeah. I what, mean, what do you mean? Just like You just got to shoot. I mean, you got to be moving all the time. You know, I, <laughs> I don't like to, you know, I've been on some sets where things stop down for 20 minutes because people are having a conversation about a Netflix show, you know, oh, and I'm no. like, oh, that's, that's great, but we got to keep going. Yeah. You know, um, I, I've, I've never had, uh, on all the series that I've done, I've never had an AD. And so I've kind of played my own AD yeah. a lot. So um, I'm always aware of the time. Mm. You know, I'm always aware of what we can accomplish, how much we can accomplish, how quickly can we accomplish it. And then I know what I can, what if I have to cut something, you know, here's my dream shot of this jib and all this happens and the car flips over or whatever it is. Um, okay, I can't do that because it's not feasible within our amount of time. Right. Uh, have you Have you worked... With an AD, a first assistant director on set before in a different role, like maybe when you were coming up or anything? Not really. I mean, I've had them. I mean, when I was in a different role, like I was, you know, a first and a second, you know, AC in New York City. Mm -hmm. And there were an AD there, of course. And I communicated with them a little bit, but not much because there wasn't really much for them to tell me. I feel like, and I I was a first AD for a few years Mm -hmm. for super talented director, Michael Underwood. And um, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be on other sets, bigger sets without him, uh, where I got to see a lot of really good ADs work. Mm-hmm. And I got to see a lot of really bad ADs work. Yeah. And I could almost uh, correlate that the performance of that AD to the efficiency of that set, to the output of that set, to ultimately what we got at the end of the day and the vibe that that everybody had on set i almost feel like it's if there's if if they've gone to the trouble to bring on a first ad then it it i think it's the most important role on set mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because they are the one position i think that has to be able to interface with all of the department heads in a in a very uh succinct and timely way. And when that is not happening, when that, when that doesn't work, when the AD is having struggles with whatever his department heads are, uh, it's not going to be good. Uh, but, but the director doesn't necessarily have to do that on a, on a lot of, on a set that has a first AD. You might have a director that's a writer and, and he wrote the story, but he doesn't know what a, uh, 12 by solid is. And so he doesn't know who to ask to get that out of the shot, you Mm -hmm. know, but a first AD 
uh, can communicate with art department. They can communicate with the with the grip and electric. They can communicate with uh, their their own production team to get things moving. It's almost it's a quarterback position yep. in a lot of ways, uh, even more so than a director. But again, there to serve the director mm-hmm. more than anything. Uh, but it's a lot more than that. It's it's about making everybody play nice and about making everybody. Uh, aware of what's happening so we can all win the day. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, that's why I think it's the most I- important role on set. And um, and when you have one that's not gelling well, it's a, it's a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it shows you um, you really need to understand uh, what you're asking from the departments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I've kind of really enjoyed doing this with – many years without an AD is I've learned, okay, what am I asking of this person? Like, is this, is this feasible? Like, is this possible? Or am I just about to blow the day up by asking for this one thing? Or Mm -hmm. is there a better way to do it? You know, maybe what I'm, I really need it, but how can I do it better? And I've really enjoyed that. You know, I really, um, I don't, uh, our audio engineer, I use a lot, uh, his name's Carlos. And, He's phenomenal. And I love sitting at lunch and asking him questions. I'm like, how can I do better? You know, like, how can I make sure that you're getting the best audio you need through my camera position? You know, um, this is what I want to accomplish. I want a huge wide. They're on the other side of the parking lot. What do we got to do? Oh, they're so far away. Cool. We'll just ADR it here in the parking lot because we can't see their lips moving. What does it matter? Yeah. You know, those kind of things. And, I've really enjoyed just learning every department, and I think it's made me just a stronger DP and a stronger director. Mm. And if someone today was like, hey, we're going to give you an AD for this set, I would say, absolutely, please do. (laughs) But I at least understand what I'm asking that AD to go to the next department and what they're going to have to accomplish. It really does free you up a lot creatively as a director because you don't have to answer all those questions at at once the the assistant director can parse those things make some decisions on their own and then you know bring you the critical the critical stuff and it it leaves you more time to work with your talent Mm -hmm. uh develop that good rapport that's i think so important because ultimately a director working with their talent you got to get a good performance which means they have to be familiar with their character Mm -hmm. and you wrote that or you know you uh, uh maybe uh, interpreted it yeah. if someone else wrote it, and it uh, it, it it becomes um, kind of a critical part to be able to 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 uh, to get that in the actor's head, and it could just be better if if you don't if you're not distracted by a thousand different things. Oh, so absolutely, I mean, I see these athletes, right, mm-hmm. uh, Olympic athletes, and how focused they are on their training, and I look at that and I go, oh, that's a dream. I wish I could be that focused on one thing. Yeah, you know. It's because they have everything else taken care of. Yeah. For them. It's because somebody else is cooking their meals and yeah. picking up their laundry and, <laughs> you know, doing all that. Yeah. How'd you get your start? Um, you know, uh, my father worked at TVA for 30 years. Okay. Um, so he was a photographer there and he ended up, at, by the time he left, he was doing the photography and also uh, video work. Um, so I learned the, my photography skills all through him and, okay. you know, and then a good friend of his um, named Scott Colthorpe, who used to run a company here called Atmosphere Pictures. I love Scott. Yeah. So um, he's like a second father to me. Like really? I, yeah. So I grew up around him and my kids call him Grandpa Scott. How, so how did that. your dad know Scott? Um, 
he met him when uh, Scott just kind of got started out, and he was hiring Scott to do a lot of their um, spots when they were running commercial spots or TVA inter- hired yeah. Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew that he had done a lot of work with TVA. Uh, the the coal ash spill, yep. I think, was a big was a big thing that he did. Yeah, yeah. I worked on that project with Scott and did a lot of the aerial stuff and was down there on the site. And gotcha. So you're you're a Scott Colthorpe disciple a little B- bit, basically. Are you the only one? I don't know any I, other ones. I maybe now I am. Yeah. Well, Roman Carpenick worked <laughs> guess, a lot. Yeah. Roman would be the other the other closest one. I can yeah, think yeah, of. yeah. So so that's so your dad worked at TVA, met mm-hmm. Scott, started working with him, and then what? You just started coming along, basically. How old were you? Ah, uh, gosh, I don't know, eight or nine. Really? You know. Um, and then, uh, you know, growing up, a lot of the time it was just me and my father. So I would go down to TVA in the summer and then I'd walk from TVA to Scott's office, which was in the building next to the JFG building, mm-hmm. which then the JFG building was still making coffee, you know. So yeah. it, was, it smelled like coffee everywhere, of course. Um, was that the Atelier building or something like that? It's right next to, I can't remember, it's literally next to it. Um, but anyway, so they were up there and then. Years later, I worked with Jupiter Entertainment, still do. They were across the hall. And at that time, I think they uh-huh. made their call like second story or something. Um, but anyway, so I hung around there, you know, set in the edit bays. I don't know if you know Don Giordano. Of course I do, yeah. So I, he was an intern there then. So I would sit there with him in the edit bay and just see him edit and, you know, just basically followed them around all summer, you know, every summer until he moved to New York. And then I chased him up there. Really? Yep. I, I, I had... I, I think I remember this from a conversation we had a while ago about you being uh, uh, affiliated with Scott Colthorpe somehow. Mm-hmm. But I actually met him. He was living in the J- – was he living in the JFG for, building Yeah, at some him point? and Roman were for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So he he, he never left the block. And, it, <laughs> you know, I guess uh, what he moved to Brooklyn or had a place in Brooklyn and would kind of do bi-coastal Yeah, situation. he was back and forth. And then there for a minute, he lived a couple blocks from me uh, in my neighborhood, which was great because we could just go over there all the time. And um, But he's back up in New York now. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was great, you know. I mean. When did you get your first paying gig? I was probably with Scott. Yeah. Um, probably, I think it, oh, you know what it was? It was the um, St. Mary's commercials with, with Peyton. Peyton. Yeah. I was a PA and I was off camera catching the ball from Peyton. That was so, my job. Wait, it wasn't <laughs> the, it wasn't the nun that caught the, that caught the pass? It really wasn't her. It wasn't the nun. It was, it was it you. Was that, me. Oh it was me. It was me the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time I worked with Scott was on a Peyton Manning commercial for Tenovo. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd met him and mm-hmm. it was probably, Probably 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if Peyton still does work with Tenova or not, but that was, it's not the first time I had worked with Peyton Manning, but yeah. it was one of the times I'd worked with him. Mm-hmm. And he and Scott went way back, you oh, know, yeah. they had, they had known each other forever. It yeah. seemed like. Yeah. I think Scott even like recommended like him getting like acting classes and stuff and all this stuff at the early, early stages. Cause those were some of his first commercial work. Heck yeah. You know? Well, Peyton Manning, man, um, for as talented as a quarterback as he was, uh, boy, he sure did capitalize on his personality. Oh yeah, and his his acting skills. And I may have told this story before, but uh, you know, working with him on I think it was another Tanova gig without without Scott Colthorpe, um, Peyton came to set and read cue cards in a teleprompter better than any actor I've ever worked with. Yeah. 
ever. <laughs> like he was, he's one of the best on camera guys. Oh yeah, I've I've ever seen. And he was in and out. Like we, you know, we we set up a a set in the uh, hotel conference room. Uh, it was a grocery store, mm-hmm. I think, and set up like rows of art department built like a whole aisle of uh, of some kind of grocery store, Food City or something like mm-hmm. that. And and uh, it was so Peyton could fly in on the on the private jet, land at Tac Air, take the golf cart over to the you know over yeah. to the uh, uh, Ramada or whatever that yeah, hotel yeah, yeah. is, the conference room. Mm-hmm. Came in, read his lines, did his on camera stuff in two hours. Yeah. And then flew out, That's flew awesome. back out. It was great, yeah. and and he was he was a pleasure to work with. Every mm-hmm. time I've worked with him, he's been he's been total pro. Yep. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I'd always I always have to be reminded that a lot of that came from from working with Scott Colthorpe, mm-hmm. Scott Colthorpe early on. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I got to go back and watch those those St. Mary's commercials now uh, because yeah. I I want to see. I, I want to see where he was before his acting classes yes. because boy, he sure did nail it. Yeah, I mean, he was always great. I really enjoyed him, and you know, when he'd throw the football to me, it'd always be you know just the normal pass or whatever. But he'd always have to throw one really hard just because he liked messing with me. You yeah, know, he's just like, all right, here it comes, you know, and it was. <laughs> Impossible to catch. I could not catch it. (laughs) So I guess he wouldn't have been in college at that point, huh? He would have been like... I guess it was just right out. Yeah. I mean, it was really early on in his career. Yeah, because nobody knew what he was going to be. Yeah. I mean, they knew he was great, but he could be... He could have been a bust, you know? Uh, And so he did the... He was a... He had a huge draw in, in... East Tennessee. Yeah. I mean, how many kids in East Tennessee that are, uh, that were born in 1997 are named Peyton? Yeah. Males and females. Like <laughs> yeah. the guy is, you know, as influential a figure, as, um, not just sports, but as mm-hmm. influential a figure as we have around here, you know, save Dolly Parton probably, yeah. you know, I mean, and, and to, uh, to see him, to go back and, and, and remember those commercials that he was doing for our, you know, our local hospital yeah. system. It's like, how'd they get, how'd they get that guy? But it's because he wasn't a hall of famer yeah. yet. Yeah. <laughs> Two times Super Bowl MVP. And they were just so fun. And, you know, Scott created all those. He concepted all of that, you know, um, with the sister and everything. I mean, that is just, well, you just don't see spots like that anymore, you know, especially I local. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I went over to Scott's house one day and, um, it was when he was living in Sequoia Hills, mm-hmm. and I uh, I remember um, walking in walking into his house, and and I I, I was I of course I was of course familiar with his work that he had done in the past. I'd worked with him a time or two, yeah. Uh, but coming in, and he had he had just moved into the house, and he had this just office set up in the biggest room in the house with mm-hmm. like a table. And a couple computers and a couple red cameras just sitting in cases on the floor. And he was working on a like a a style guide of some sort Mm -hmm. or like a shooting style for a show that he was about to do. And he was just running me through running me through his kind of deck that he had built on on his computer and I was like, Man, I thought you were just like I thought you were kind of a director DP type. I didn't know that you were coming up well like i didn't know you were kind of workshopping these lines mm-hmm. and kind of came up with the concept and it was kind of the first person that i had come across who i really saw like the swiss army knife mentality out of yeah because working or starting you know when i lived in la and working in in the industry out there and then 
working with the uh, director, Michael Underwood, like I, I really had this mentality in my head of like, you have to do one thing and you have to mm-hmm. do it really well. Otherwise people aren't going to think you know what you're doing. Yeah. And so, you know, don't be a colorist and a grip, you know, but like choose one thing and focus on it. And Scott was really the first person that I think I saw like, shit, you really can be this holistic, creative mm-hmm. individual who is capable enough in a lot of different areas to be able to build build a concept, build a story, build a shooting style, mm-hmm. build an editing style. And and I saw that I saw him do it with commercials, I saw him do it with TV shows and then documentaries ultimately. Yeah. And it was it was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me to see someone who was accomplished who was doing more than one thing at a very high level. And for you to be the uh uh kind of the 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 guy in waiting for or not the guy in waiting but the, the a disciple of i mean mm-hmm. i can only imagine that that came that that real that light bulb happened for you a lot earlier it did and it was also kind of a shock too when i went into um directing a series right because i thought well that's that's how scott does it so i'll be allowed to do that here and i mm. wasn't you know ah. where it was kind of like oh um I really like to, you know. Really? So, so when you first did that series, uh, was it like, were, were you, did you come thinking you were going to offer this whole kind of omni-facing creative vision and you got there and they're like, no, man, we just need you to like the shots yeah, or something like that. Basically, yeah. And it was challenging. But over the years, I think as uh, they've trusted me, I've had more of that opportunity you know, to mm. build boards and be like, hey, look at this. What do you think about this? Um and have more communication um, about the scripts and a little bit on the editing, but these shows are put together so quickly. There's just not that amount of time to be able to like for me to watch a cut when they've got the network and they've got the showrunner and the EPs and you know I'm kind of left out of that. Yeah. So does that put more pressure on you from a storytelling standpoint to knowing that you're not going to necessarily have editorial control, does that put more pressure on you to tell the story in your with your own voice before it ever gets into the edit bay? It does. It does. And I think with the way I try to accomplish it is I try to only shoot what I need. Mm. Um, I try not to overshoot, yeah. you know. Um, Don't give them choices. Yeah, you know, and make sure there's, you know, adequate choices, choices for the edit. But, uh, you know, depending on the series um, – there's only so much time in a show. You know, a show is going to be, what, 42 minutes and some change or 43. Yeah, for linear. Yeah. Um, and then you've got B-roll and you've got interviews with that. So, um, you know, with the recreations that we were doing or are doing, um, there are a lot of the show, but you can really focus down. You know, you don't need to shoot 600 minutes worth of footage for a 42-minute long program, you know. Mm. Um, so you're digging into efficiency then you're, you're getting multiple takes and mm-hmm. multiple performances and different options for, for the scene, but you're trying to not shoot at a, uh, hundred minutes for every one minute that yeah. makes, that's going to make the cut. We're trying to, what's the best angle for this room? Let's shoot that angle. Mm-hmm. We don't need to shoot all four corners just yep. to shoot them. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so that's kind of where I'm always, uh, in it is, this is the best angle. This looks the nicest for the wide. 
this is all we're shooting for the wide and then we'll do whatever we need to do the for the coverage. Yeah. That's confidence though mm-hmm. to me. That's where that's where that that's where the rubber meets the road with that mentality because I've seen a lot of people over the years who don't have that confidence. Mm-hmm. And so what they want to do to hedge against that is give their editors a lot of options so it can never come back that they didn't get what they needed to get. But it takes experience, I think, in order to a build that confidence and to make that make make that confidence pay off in a way that serves the story or the project that you're working on. Because if you're certain that you're getting the right thing and it's the wrong thing, you're not going to work again. Yeah, <laughs> you got to get it right if you're gonna if you're gonna be sure that you're, you know that that you're only going to shoot what you know you need. And the fact that you've been working for as many years as you have proves to me <laughs> and to others <laughs> that you do have those chops. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I've done that, right? I've done that where I've had to shoot the coverage, Yeah, you know, especially early on, um, but not really early on because of through Scott, um, you know, I credit him a lot is seeing his boards and being on his sets. He did not overshoot, you know, he shot what he needed to shoot and he got out. That's pre-production too. Yeah. And and a lot of people don't do that anymore. You're right. They and, don't. And and I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. And I see it with our mutual friend Doug Griffey, for instance. Um, you know, consummate professional. He's was on the podcast not too long ago. Um, but he does the work in pre-production. Uh and, and so you know that you only you only need this and mm-hmm. you only need this camera move because it leads into the next shot. I don't need to shoot it five ways yeah. because I did my work on the front end. And people think that pre-pro is expensive. It's not. It's not. Going through all that footage is expensive because your DP or your director didn't know exactly what they needed. And now you're saddled with terabytes and hours of footage for a 30-second spot. Yeah. And it's uh, it's it's – Almost, uh, I don't know, it's it somewhat to me, I think, and, and this may be an overly simplistic uh, take, but I just think it kind of separates the, the, the pros from the, you know, the, the trunk slammers yeah. out there, the amateurs who are mm-hmm. just doing it for fun. They know what they want. They do the pre-pro and then they get that. Yeah. And then they might get a little bit extra just in case there was a stand in the shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and you, and you never know what's going to go wrong, right? Maybe performance on an actor is not great. So maybe we'll shoot some coverage of just our detectives listening because the actor is not phenomenal. So you just know you're going to have to cut away yeah, because maybe, the performance that you're going to be hearing mm-hmm. is not necessarily the face you want to be seeing. You would rather hear your yeah. uh, hear, or see your guys listening. Or because it's the recreation shows, maybe we just hear our real detective talking in VO and now we can just cut to – you know, he's telling the story now because mm. the performance wasn't great. Yeah. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen very, that's really rare, but it has happened, yeah. you know? Um, but there's always give and take, right? I mean, I use a software called um, ShotLister and yeah, I, I've heard of it. I love it. It's an AD tool too, right? It is. And I, I love it. I mean, it's on my iPad, it's on my phone, it's on my computer and I can build my whole day. And I can share it with the entire crew of what's happening shot by shot by shot and putting it in, like I said, you know, I don't usually have an AD, so I'm doing a lot of that work. Um, So I'm creating those shots in order I think they need to be for the room. You know, like we're going to start here and do this and do that, do that, you know, Um, and in the order of the day and then work with the producer, of course, on scheduling it all. Yeah. 
What I like about it is it gives you a time. So I can put in there, hey, I think this is going to take 30 minutes. So it gives me a full clock of what my 10-hour, 12-hour day is going to be. And as I click things off, you know, it subtracts time. Yeah. So as I go through, I know I need to pick it up. We got to yeah. pick it up or we're behind. Or I can look at it and go, we're ahead. This scene, you know, we could do something really cool here. Everybody slow down. Yeah. You know, we got the time. Let's do it right. It can be better if we do X and whatever, you know. So in Shotlister, you have all your shots listed out. You have them scene numbered. You have mm-hmm. a description of them and then a time that you want to allow for it. And then it, it adds all that up into uh, however long the day is, right? Correct. Yep. Can't you also like move them around in mm-hmm. real time in the app and it kind of – the time allowance tells you what time you need to be starting that shot and yep. all that? Yeah, you can just grab it and move it to no, – like – Hey, the actor's not here. He's delayed an hour. We need to move these scene. Easy enough. Select that scene, move it to whatever point in the day, and it recalculates the time. How much easier is that than a spreadsheet that we used Way to do? Way easier. <laughs> Anything's easier than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to breeze through your career. Yeah. Uh, because I, 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 it's, you know, dare I say, uh, prolific. But uh, you're working on a movie. Right now, or you, you finally, it's cut, right? It's cut, it's done, it's with a distributor. It's called An Awful Thing Has Gone and Happened. It's a dark comedy, and it's uh, it's going to be out at the end of the month here at uh, May 30th. Okay. Where, uh, where is the distribution happening? So, uh, right now, they're doing pre orders on Barnes and Noble, okay. and then as a uh, Blu ray, and then there's also going to be some digital stuff too, I think Amazon okay. for digital download. Um, and then there's some other opportunities too for like, um, paid streaming, stuff like that. So, um, but right now their pre-orders are open on Barnes and Noble and some other websites as well. If you just search it, it'll come up. So I picked up on the, uh, the dark comedy stuff, the timing, the pace, mm-hmm. the pacing of the comedy is hilarious. Good. <laughs> it, it is, it, it's just like. The lady walking out of the room, the mm-hmm. older lady. I'm like, oh, this is going on so long, and mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. Like yeah. she's laboring to breathe and kind of mm-hmm. just <laughs> slowly moving. But it's you know somewhat serious subject matter, yeah. Too. But what's kind of the uh, what's kind of the synopsis of the story or the logline plus? Yeah. So it, it's about a girl. Her brother has died, and she's returning home to try to find out what happened, what went wrong. Okay. Uh, did you write it? I did. Okay. I did. I wrote it, and um, my wife Deborah and Deborah Mitchell and a good friend of mine Ian Goodman helped on the story, and his wife Jenny Goodman. Basically, I would just write, 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 and I could pass it off to them to read and get almost immediate feedback. Mm. And I could sit down again and write, 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 and disappear, you know, for hours and send it again. It was, it was like having your own little tiny writing room, you know. But I was the one putting the words on page, but it was just nice to get that instant feedback and could bounce ideas off of them. Like, mm-hmm. hey, what do you think? What if we move this here? Does that feel better? Oh, yeah, that's better. Or we need to cut this scene. It's it's not – it's pointless, you know, or whatever. So what was the process like in ultimately getting to a final cut stage? I uh, can only assume you wrote it first mm-hmm. and had a, a, a final script. First, yes, and then what happens after that? So uh, we completed the script and uh, we shot the film in. Um, let's see here, it was April two years ago, 
Um, so it had been, what, 2021? Yeah, so like vaccine time. Yeah. Like right when shooting was allowed again. Yeah, it was right on the cusp because we we shot through all the pandemic. Like, it's mm. like we never stopped. Mm. Like, I, I think we stopped for like three weeks and I was right back to work. Mm. Um, you mean for your uh, true crime stuff? Yeah, true okay. crime stuff. So yeah. um, we were shooting a series that I deeply love, um, ATL Homicide, and but we were small crews, right? Mm-hmm. It was like five or six of us. I, I was pull. I was the producer wasn't on set. We had our producer not come on set, and so it was a tele tele conference thing for your producer, or no? She just helped schedule everything, mm. and she was on the phone, so we could pick up the phone and be like, "Hey, our actor didn't show up, or this location is falling through," right. and then she could tr- she could basically do her job from there, right? So, so it was uh, a skinnied up crew, yes, on ATL homicide mm-hmm. for that. Usually we'd have two cameras and an AC, and it was um, art, grip, gaffer, audio, DP. Okay. And I was directing, but I was also kind of the onset producer because I had to fill some of those questions from actors that usually the producer would do. And then also um, I was pulling focus the whole time. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I was slating and pulling focus. Um, so I did that, that today. Fun. Yes. <laughs> so, Sometimes you got to. Yeah. You just got to do it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those people, you know, we did that. And then, so we were kind of all used to that environment. Yeah. Right. And we were shooting six day weeks with two days off for mm. months. Um, so we had a little bit of break and um, I wrote this film. During the break? Um, during the break. Okay. In between seasons or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so this wasn't necessarily a product of the pandemic then. It it was it was and it wasn't. The idea might have yeah. been, but the but the 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 pen pen hit the paper, mm-hmm. kind of in between seasons of ATL homicide. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, I think the pandemic opened my eyes of what was important and what did I really want to do. Yeah, as know? it did for many, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, Had you? Is this your first feature? This is my first feature. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So so you got it written in. 2021-ish? Somewhere around there. I could be wrong. It could have been 20. Who knows? So how long did it take? Yeah. Time doesn't exist yeah. in that in that, those three years. Yeah. So uh, what did it take to get it from a completed script to pressing record on mm-hmm. the camera or oh, rolling film, whatever you guys yeah. shot it on, on the, on the first day? A lot of work. Really? A lot of work. What kind? Um, you know, we... Of course, we had revisions, right? Had to rewrite the script several times. Not full rewrite. Who mandated those? Me, myself. Okay, cool. So it wasn't you you hadn't engaged with uh, with a studio or anything at the time that was that was requiring that. Correct. Okay. Correct. So, and so we started with that, and once we kind of had that final final project, um, we started thinking about funding, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to find the funding, communicating with people. Um, So we we started doing that, started securing a little bit of funding. And then we started, um, you know, talking to crew first, even before cast, hmm. um, because these were, were all going to be people that I had just done basically ATL with and others, you know. Hmm. So we had reached out to everybody and confirmed dates. It was kind of a perfect window. That had ended. No one else had anything booked after that. And everybody was still scared to death yeah. about the virus. And everybody was very willing to work. Um, sometimes at a reduced rate, I'm sure, but yeah. I, I, I'm also certain that you've made enough, uh, that you've made enough, oh, Bonnie, <laughs> my dog's freaking out. Uh, I, I'm sure that you've made enough, uh, uh, you know, good relationships in the industry where you had 
plenty. You, you knew who your crew, who you wanted your crew to be, and I'm sure they were more than willing to yeah. to come play with you on your debut yeah. feature. <laughs> it, it was great. I mean, the response from the script, everybody read it. They loved it. They fell in love with it, um, just as much as we had, you know, just writing it. So getting the crew together wasn't very difficult. You know, um, everybody liked working together. We'd just done a very difficult time working together, not against each other, but just in an environment, yeah. right? Um, so that was fairly easy to get the crew together. And then after that, we started casting, you know, started reaching out to people that we did know, people we didn't know, and started that process. And it's it's a lot, you know, doing it on your own, um, trying to figure out and make those hard decisions um, on, well, who is the best for this role? And then you have surprises where someone would read for one role and you're like, you're not great for that, but you know what you are great for. You know, we had people who were going to be our, our lead, but ended up being the sheriff in the film and was amazing at it, you know. Did you ever have any actors audition that were not right for the roles that you had written, but you found a place for them or wrote anything in for them? And I asked that because I remember hearing an anecdote about Lost. You mm -hmm. remember that show? Oh, yeah. You remember Hurley from mm -hmm. Lost? He came in and read the part for Sawyer and they were like, this guy is, is just not right for this part at all. But my God, if we don't put this guy in our television show, we're going to regret it. Yeah. And so they wrote a role for him. Yeah. And did you have any, anything like that or was it just kind of moving the box cars around to, to fit, to fit people in? It was more, we did have at least one occasion where we didn't create a role, but we found a role for someone who was being uh, uh, reading for a different character. Gotcha. You know, we were like, you're not for this, but you know what you are for. You mm -hmm. know, like you are perfect for this role. Do you give that actor the opportunity to, and I guess this this question is not just for that role, yeah. but for all of them. Like, do you give them license to make it their own when you're directing a feature? I think yes and no, right? Yeah. Um, I want them to be allowed to make decisions. I don't want to like control every movement that they do, but all of them, whatever they did bring was better. You know, when they did bring well, something, there was never a moment where I was like, ah, don't do that again. You yeah. know, it was all like, I like that. That's, that's better. You know, do that. Mm. Um, you know, the, they stuck with the lines, of course. There wasn't really improving on any of the lines, but it yeah. was more of a, maybe a movement or how they delivered the line. You know, it's like, ah, it's not how I heard it in my head, but you did a better job. And that's great. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's gotta be the most, one of the most gratifying feelings in the world, other than seeing your own, you know, ideas and words come to life that, you know, you wrote, mm -hmm. um, to see them come to life on screen, but to see them, to see that character come to life on screen better than you expected. What's that feeling like? It's great. I mean, it's amazing, you know, um, to finally be able to, I, I mean, I think we spent a year on the script, I think. Mm. And, and the script had changed so many times to what it was. But it's just a great feeling to see it complete, you know, especially now with music and mixing and all that. And the first edit, it's just, you know. You're watching it and you're like, it's good, but yeah, it's a story. Yeah. It's there. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. 
So what happens after you get this crew together, you get it cast, Mm -hmm. you know everybody's availability, you know your production days. I assume there's some location scouting, there's some some tech scouting that Mm -hmm. happens. What's that whole process like? So there's a lot of um, scouting process. You know, we, we basically wrote the film around some locations we knew we had access to. Mm-hmm. Basically gained locations almost before I even started writing the script. Really? Um, just to know that, okay, this is what I can accomplish. Mm. Um, so we spent a lot of time with that, gaining permission on these locations. And then also one of the locations was an abandoned farm home. So this this farmhouse, we ended up having to, no one had lived there in 20 years. So we end up having to go in there and clean it up and pull old furniture out and then, you know, buy furniture that we wanted and prop it out. And Ian uh, Goodman was, you know, the production designer on this. So him just going all over the place to find unique furniture, you know. Um, So it was a little backwards, right? You know, we just didn't write the script from my mind and that was that. It's we started with these locations because we knew – we were in pandemic time, so maybe a lot of locations people aren't going to allow us to come in still. Mm-hmm. You know, it was early vaccination. We were all just starting to get our vaccines at the beginning of the film. It it sounds, you know, yes, to Hollywood standards, it might sound backwards. But to me, it sounds smart and efficient mm-hmm. because you – to write this – to write a uh, – some idyllic – location into a script and then have to go track it down is expensive and it's hard. And like you said, you may or not be able to secure that. And then all of a sudden you're, you're making compromises. Mm -hmm. But to me, it sounds like you knew the certainties that you had to work within. And it's that it's one of those examples of when boundaries can exacerbate creativity mm-hmm. almost. And people think that that's counterintuitive. People think that in order to be creative, you need to just be able to have a blank canvas and do all this. But for me, in a lot of situations, and it sounds like in this situation too, you got some guardrails up mm-hmm. and then you were able to know where those guardrails were and what you could work within. And it seems like it added, it it, it almost seems like it could jumpstart the creativity creative process because you know you you can see your character in that farmhouse when you're riding did you find that to be the case i did you know and because we had access to these places for so long because no one was living in it we were able to go in there and literally almost photograph the movie on our phones yeah you know like okay this is a scene where she's at the table and he's there and whatever and you know we could photograph it and um see how it felt you know um and it kind of was – we used a lot of things that were already in the farm home, but a lot of times we just brought stuff in to match it. Yeah. Um, I just – it. I think it's almost – you're exactly right. You know, having those guardrails up, it gives to me more freedom, you know? I agree 100%. And a lot of the most creative people I know hate boundaries, mm-hmm. hate guardrails. They want to just think stuff up and put it down on paper and it happens. And that, and that is a gift that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love, I hate a blinking cursor on a mm-hmm. page. 
Yeah. I, I, I need, I need something to work with and give me anything. Give me a budget. Mm-hmm. Give me a, yeah. a, a, a main character. Give, give me, uh, you know, something to where I'm not completely creating on my own. I'm creating within confines. And mm-hmm. that, that to me, uh, you know, some people might say that's, that's hackish, but I don't think so. I think some of the best stuff happens that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it takes some of that, um, pressure off. Yeah. You know, okay. I know I'm shooting in this farmhouse. What can I create in this room? Yeah. So after you, uh, after you start to shoot the film, how many days was the shoot? So I think it was around probably 16 to 20. We had a couple pickup days. Um, so call it 20 days yeah. at 90 pages. No, mm-hmm. uh, it was a little over 90. Can't remember exactly. Maybe it was like ninety eight. Okay, so close it was, enough. Yeah, so a hundred pages. Yeah, um, and then at, you know I haven't done a lot of feature work, but mm-hmm. my, I did go to film school, and my understanding <laughs> is that uh, one page equals uh, about a minute Correct. of screen time, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So so you have a, a hundred minute film, let's say, and you're shooting five pages or five minutes a day. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be. Uh, on about on par with what I would expect is that is that a lot or is that not a lot as far as uh, is that an expedited process it's it's a lot we were shooting a lot we're shooting uh, mm-hmm. uh, are you shooting more than avatar was in, oh, in, yeah. in, okay <laughs> all right um you know I, I think it it varies right you know you've got people like Clint Eastwood who can shoot a movie in 36 40 days and then um, you know, a friend of mine's on a feature in Nashville that's been shooting for six months. Really? Um, so I think it just depends the complication, the director, the story, whatever it can be. And I mean, I think a good number is Clint's number, you know, let's really? do 36, 40 days. That's, I didn't think any okay. more than that. You about kill people. So you know? that's two, two and a half pages yeah. a day, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you did, you did twice the, um, kind of twice the prescribed yeah. uh, amount of screen time in a day. I can't tell by watching it. I yeah. mean, it lo- it all looks good. It doesn't mm-hmm. look like you rushed anything. No. I mean, that comes back to the pre-pro. You know, we, we there you go. had every shot figured out, mm-hmm. had every bit of lighting figured out, have it every bit of, you know, propage figured out, mm-hmm. you know. And then when we could, um, we had the talent um, rehearse before we rolled. Mm. So they knew what was going to happen. It wasn't a surprise or anything like, oh, well, the camera's coming over here now. It was all – everybody knew exactly what was going to happen. Communication is the uh, – to me, it's mm-hmm. it's the secret weapon in, in uh, the filmmaking arsenal. Mm-hmm. It's the I, to me. I think it's the most important part. I try to pride myself as being a decent communicator when I'm working on set, and try to maybe err on the side of over communicating. I, I hope I don't do that, but uh, just enough efficient communication. Mm-hmm. I think I think is smart, and to be able to have your head wrapped around it in a pre pro manner, like you said, it makes that communication certain. Like you know who you need to communicate what to at what time. Mm-hmm. And then things can start to happen efficiently. And I guess to me, I mean, it seems like that seemed to be a secret weapon that you deployed <laughs> in shooting, you know, twice as much as, you know, Clint Eastwood does. In yeah. the day. Well, and I think doing all these recreation shows, you know, we are shooting an incredible amount. You know, it's not they don't do page counts, they do scene counts. So mm. it's a little different. But Well, it's documentary style, right? Yeah. You know, and it's it's like shooting a mini 
a mini TV movie in three days or two days. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's basically what you're doing. And you could have, who knows how many, 12 scenes. And maybe it's like a series I worked on, Storm of Suspicion, and we've got snow and rain towers, and it's going to take an incredible amount of time, you know? I was telling somebody Mm -hmm. about Storm of Suspicion this week. Did Amy Hubbard direct some of that? She did direct some of it, yeah. Was she before you, after you? So I did like the first season. I actually directed and shot it for the first season. Okay. And then moved on and did some other things. And then I just kind of day played here and there. They needed a DP or a director and... Now, actually, my wife produces it. <laughs> wow. So, so I, I, uh, I was, somebody was asking me this past weekend about like, why is there so much television production in Knoxville? Mm-hmm. And I went through the whole Ross Bagwell family tree, yeah. the whole D, ba- D Bagwell, Haslam, Stephen Land, all that kind of mm-hmm. over explained that whole deal. Yeah. And then I started talking about Jupiter and, you know, and, and how I guess Lucid came out of that. Now you got Streetcar, you've mm-hmm. got, you know, this whole family tree keeps going down and down and down and down of all these companies that kind of came. Uh, from kind of one guy ultimately, mm-hmm. but one area or one of the questions that somebody asked was, how come there's so much true crime shot here? And it was like, well, people cut their teeth on it. They got good. They made the connections at the network. They delivered on those promises. I'm mm-hmm. talking about, I guess, Stephen Land's company, mostly Jupiter entertainment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they just, they, they, they had the room. They were the, they were the, uh, they became, the company that did this kind of content. And then for some reason, maybe maybe because Jupiter had made such great stuff or maybe just because it's a social and cultural phenomenon, but true crime is fucking huge now. Yeah. I mean, the number five podcast on, you know, Apple podcast behind, you know, whoever Joe Rogan and call her daddy and, you know, Andrew Huberman is, mm-hmm. is crime junkie, which is, you know, a, a just an amazing true crime podcast, but it yeah. proves that true crime has America's attention mm-hmm. specifically. And, uh, I, I went on to explain that Jupiter and the uh, their counterparts and and their peers around here that make this kind of material, um, they they have been doing it for so long and been doing it at such a high level and with such great results that they can walk into a room at the Weather Channel and say, "Listen, it's a true crime show, but the weather." has to do with the crime. Mm-hmm. They did it because the thunder was going off when they shot the gun and yeah. you so you couldn't hear it and and you know everybody started laughing and I'm like no that's a show that really is yeah, a show. Storm a of Suspicion show. is a television show. Yeah. And so Jupiter is so good at making true crime that they sold a true crime television mm-hmm. show to the Weather Channel. Yes. If you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it I mean that first season I did it was great. Because, you know, we had all the toys, you know, yeah. we had the rain towers from Atlanta and we had the snow machines and all that stuff. And they even came, the Weather Channel came down and did a behind the scenes. Well, I'm sure they were over the moon. Had they ever made a show like this no. before? Mm-mm. It was their first true crime mm-hmm. show that they'd ever made. Yeah. Interesting. So they came down there and interviewed all of us and it's somewhere on the internet. Oh, that's I'm great. Sure. <laughs> that's great. So... After the the movie gets shot, you guys mm-hmm. spend sixteen days doing this, all yeah. on location, no in, nothing in studio, right? Correct. Okay, so after you shoot this film, is that when you start looking for a place for it to land, or did you already kind of know where it was going to land? Well, we didn't we didn't have a place yet. Okay, you know we we did this completely independent of okay. any pr- other production company other than ourselves. So and you raised your own money. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure you scraped scraped whatever you could together and, yeah, and got found whatever. Some other investors yeah. and did the whole the whole nine yards, right? So there's lawyers involved now. Oh yeah. Yeah. And well, we got them in I will say that is we got them involved very early on because we've heard that, you know, to build contracts for the crew and just make sure everybody got what we were asking and everybody was comfortable with what they were getting, you know. It, that's another communication thing. Yeah. Like communicate even that part of mm-hmm. it, not just the creative part, but communicate that part of it on the front end. So there's no questions about how am I getting paid? When am I getting paid? Where am I getting paid? Everybody knows what what's happening with yeah. the with with that part of it. Yeah. It's important. Well, and you know, once it's, once it was shot, we took a little bit of a break afterwards because we were just exhausted. I'm sure. So me and my wife directed it together and, um, we have two young kids. And so we had, you know, a family watching them because I mean, we were, we were the first ones there and the last ones to leave every day. Was it in town? It was in town. Okay. We shot everything in, um, Kodak, Tennessee. Okay. Up in Wartburg. Oh, wow. That's the other way. Yep. The other opposite direction. Yeah. And then um, some in Knoxville. Okay. In Bearden area. Okay. So um, we were within all driving range, thankfully, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, no hotels. Was, no no hotels for us. Yeah. Um, you know, we had to do all the travel and because we did not do a, to save on money, we didn't do a production manager. Mm. So me and Deborah were booking all the flights and all the hotels and all the rental cars because- Majority of our actors um, came from out of state. Man, I, I'm not trying to disparage our, our local talent market mm-hmm. here, but I have had a, I just feel like it's too hard for a seasoned actor or an actor to get there to get a you know a hell of a lot of work in Knoxville to where they can only do that. And yeah. um, and again, not to disparage or discourage anybody mm-hmm. from doing that. But you do notice that the best actors around here work in Atlanta and they work in Nashville Mm -hmm. and they work in other marketplaces. And a lot of times if you really want super good talent, especially for narrative work, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes you do have to go. Yeah. You got to go out of market. Yeah. We we had to. I mean, we just, you know, we ran into some like actually very talented people we wanted in the film, but because they're not full time actors, they weren't able to take. 16 days off to film. And that's another part of it that I, that I should have, have mentioned Mm -hmm. too. in, 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 you know, part and parcel to that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not that they're not good. They are good. They just also have to work at Home Depot during the day to make a living because there's not necessarily uh, a movie like yours popping up every month. We're not Atlanta. We're not, we're not Nashville. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe we could be with some tax incentives, please. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not there yet. No, it doesn't seem like. No. And, and I think for many, many years, people always talked about Knoxville could be this thing and it, it, it can be, but we need, we need some help from the state. We do. And the Dolly movie got it. Yeah. Did you hear that? I, I heard a little bit. I knew a bunch of people worked on it and I heard a little bit that they got but something. Anecdotally, mm-hmm. I heard that, um, Commissioner Bob Rains, the uh, uh, Tennessean Entertainment Commissioner, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, a, 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 a part of the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development, which was Randy Boyd's old uh, old office, which was he was appointed by Governor Haslam to do economic and community development, which means bringing factories to not to not to Knoxville to the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, clearing these giant pieces, buying and 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 making these 
uh, giant pieces of land, uh, uh, places that a tile company from Italy might want to come and, 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 and buy. And Randy Boyd did such a great job with that kind of thing yeah. that, uh, that that those companies did do that, and mm-hmm. it and it you know they say we have a capable workforce, we have, uh, you know we have it's a nice place to live. You can have a good lifestyle here, mm-hmm. and it and it draws people to the to the area. Well, the Tennessee Entertainment Commission, I think, is part of that is underneath the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development. I could be wrong about that, but uh, I feel like we already have in the state of Tennessee, and especially in Knoxville, disproportionately to the other cities in the state, we have the workforce. Mm-hmm. We have the the crew that works on films day in and day out uh, for Jupiter, for Lock and Key, for you know all kinds of production companies we have around here. We have that piece in place already. Mm-hmm. We have the workforce. What we don't have is the other things that make Tennessee uh, – uh, attractive to large film studios. One of the things that Georgia has, and the reason that Tyler Perry built a gigantic, you know, studio compound in Lakewood is because Georgia has tax incentives. It gives you 30% of your money back mm-hmm. for anything you spend on a film. And from what I heard, Dolly wanted to so badly shoot that Christmas special at Dollywood, but the numbers didn't make sense. And so if you go back and look at her TV show, Heartstrings, uh, those those theater shots are at the Tabernacle in Atlanta, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they spent a million dollars and they got $300,000 yeah. back for doing it. And so in order to keep Dolly from shooting that movie in Georgia or somewhere else, from what I understand, Dolly fought for it. Mm-hmm. And if there's somebody that's going to get that string pulled – and get the tax incentive for that film done, it's her oh, yeah. in Tennessee. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nobody else more influential in the state of Tennessee no. than Dolly Parton. I mean, just, I don't think it's close. No. Uh, but so from from what I understand, that the proposal to match Georgia's tax incentives to film Dolly's Christmas special here uh, was went to uh, went to the went to the uh, state to the Tennessee mm-hmm. economic uh, or the Tennessee entertainment commission, Bob Rains, he's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, I, 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 he's had to have been put in a super tough situation Oh yeah, where it's like, Dolly's going to go to Georgia if you don't match 30, you know, match their tax incentive. And they did. Wow. And they shot that film at Dollywood. Yeah. And so there is precedent mm-hmm. for us to have, <laughs> A tax incentive here. Yeah. And so when that happened to me, like a lot of people were like, oh, great, we have a Dollywood movie here. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand the big picture. Like this is this is a big thing. This could be the start of us having a tax incentive in Tennessee. And I heard, again, anecdotally, for years that D. Haslam at River Media was very opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is obvious. I would understand why. If a bunch of movies come in to – to Tennessee and start filming here. The freelance crew is gobbled up by all those films and the rates go up and meaning her budgets have to go up, which Mm -hmm. makes them less competitive in the marketplace. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it, it makes sense to why someone in that position would be opposed to it. Her brother-in-law was the governor. (laughs) And so I'm sure there was some, pull there. I don't know. I hope I'm not, you know, I hope mm-hmm. I'm not saying too much, but I do feel like 
we may have turned over a new leaf. Yeah. There may be a new guard that is not 100% opposed to Tennessee having a good tax incentive, which would then draw more studio films into Tennessee. And I think that now that there's precedent for it, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we uh, copy paste yes. that. And I'm sure you are too. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, how much would you love to have 30% of your money back? It would have been amazing. Yeah. I mean. And a lot of people would flock here to do it. Yeah. And you know what that would do? That would make actors be able to live yeah. here and make a living yeah. as an and actor. Make an actual living. Yes. I mean, it's. And then be available for your film. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have a nine to five job that they're having to work. Yeah. And be a big deal. It'd be huge. I I think. But until that happens, uh, an independent film like yours is unfortunately going to go, have to go out of state and maybe, well, at least out of, out of the region and maybe out of the state to get full-time actors to work on their stuff. Yeah. I mean, then that, that is the problem, right? I mean, and the reason I did it here is because. Well, I love it here. I mean, I live here. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm from here. I grew up here. I mean, I, I left and went to New York and other places, but I, I wanted to come back. Yeah. And I want to make films here. Yeah. You know, and I want my next film to be here. I don't mm-hmm. want to go to somewhere else. I want it to be in the state of Tennessee. So if the state could help us and, you know, making it easier for small businesses, which is what we are, right? We're a small business, um, to accomplish that. Um it can be nothing but good for the state. Mm-hmm. I agree. So you, you touched on New York. I think we mostly got through talking about the film, did we? Did we leave anything out? Well, I mean, um, you know, with the film, we talked a little bit about Deborah edited it all, my wife. Oh, She edited wow. the entire thing. Okay. So she killed it. Um, Dang, you know, girl. First thing we did was cut a trailer because we wanted to keep people excited, mm-hmm. right? So just so we could show the crew and the cast, I'm like, hey, here's Investors, a trailer. Investors, I'm sure, wanted yeah, to get excited and exactly. see where their money was going. Yeah, everybody, just here it is. Check it out. Um, and then, you know, we, we took a little bit of a break. Um, just We just needed a minute to breathe, you know, um, and then started doing it again. Um, but Deborah did the entire film um, from – Top to bottom. I never, I don't think I ever touched the keyboard. Is she an editor by trade? She is not. She's a shooter director by trade, but she knows editing. She knows how to tell a story. Yeah. You know? I, I listened to a podcast with, or no, I think it was a master class uh, with Ron Howard one mm-hmm. time. And I mean, I don't know anybody more experienced in filmmaking yeah. than him. You know, I mean, he was Opie and yeah. then, you know, directed. Name it, you know, mm-hmm. Apollo 13, whatever. Uh, but he said that for him, always, you always want to err on the side of emotion when you're choosing takes to put in a film. The lighting might not have been perfect, mm-hmm. but the performance in the take that the lighting was perfect isn't evocative enough to it it doesn't deserve to be in this film necessarily Mm -hmm. and to me that really that really like i don't know why it hit a core with me but it it really like it gave me that excitement as someone who makes motion pictures for a living that emotion is what we're selling here Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make people feel things and if you have a take that has that brings a tear to your eye 
and a take that just kind of makes you feel something. But the take that just kind of makes you feel something was technically, technically better by, you know, filmmaking standards, lighting and sound and mm-hmm. all that. Put the take in that wasn't perfect that brought the same emotion out because it's it's that's what we're that's what we're trying to get across here. Yeah. And I I I think that if you can feel that, and I'm sure Deborah can because she, you know, has been behind the camera mm-hmm. and produced plenty of things. You know, you bring somebody in who who knows what emotion feels like and knows how to tell a story, especially if she's as familiar with the story of your film as mm-hmm. she was. I mean you can teach somebody how to push the buttons and drag, you know, yeah. drag digital film around, you know, but you can't teach somebody how to feel or how to make somebody feel something. And so, you know, if you've got the, if you've got that part, the storytelling part of it, I couldn't, you know, couldn't really think of a, of, of a, of a better person that was so, um, just so intimately involved with the story to kind of make those decisions in post-production. Yeah. I mean, and just, because I am was a DP first. Sometimes I see that lighting and I'm like, don't use that take. Yeah. Don't use that one. But if it's better, I left a lot of that to her. Good. You know, where I was like, okay, I just, just, you think we need to get rid of it. I know you're right. I just can't watch you cut it. Just yeah. Cut it. Just, <laughs> do know, it. just do it. It's fine. Yeah. We'll mask for, that. forget later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or we'll fit, you know, this, this shot and this, the emotion in the shot is worth, you know, the, the day of post-production that it's going to take for somebody to paint that stand out of the corner of the shot. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, for sure. There was, you know, the rant, you just said that. There was times that we did these wides and, I'm, you know, I love Carlos and we I know what it needs to happen from learning with him on audio, how important it is. To me, it's a radio show first, right? Mm. If it doesn't sound good and you can't hear it, you lose the audience right away. They're like, oh, something's wrong here, but they don't know what, Yeah, you know? So, um, he, uh, you know, I had a scene where it's like, he's in it. Like I have this wide shot of this building. I put him in it with the boom and he's just there booming, but you know, we just locked it down along a building. So it's just, wasn't that hard to get rid of him. Yeah. But it's, you know, in, in the moment it's funny. Cause you're like, yeah. you know, after the take, we're like, boom, even though we know, he knows yeah. he's in it. <laughs> Boom's his whole in the body's show. in it, you know? <laughs> so, so a lot of those moments, you know, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just been a great learning experience but you know with deborah's skill she also uh did post-production she did was a post-producer at one point too. okay so being able to communicate with music and graphics mm. and deliverables right to yeah. get it to the distributors and how it needs to be cut wow. and a lot of that stuff where i can edit but i haven't had a lot of experience in delivering you know right. that's usually been someone else's job yeah, the, the, the codecs and the file formats yeah. and the wrappers and all that. Yeah, it's, it's like, like I can get it for what it needs to be on set. It needs to be shot at this for this reason and for that. But what it needs to be for this deliverable to this person and for that format and then this person over here, I don't know. <laughs> so so the movie's wrapped up now. It's in a bow, yeah, right? It's, it's all wrapped up. You're not going to touch it again. It's done. No director's cut, no nothing. I don't think it needs it. I think, it, you know, we oh, cut man. like- What a compliment to your uh, well, wife, man. Yeah. I mean, we <laughs> cut 25 minutes out of the film. It was it was heavy. It was almost two hours. With, we with, cut, five, page, with five pages a day, it yeah, was still heavy. It was still heavy. It was almost <laughs> two hours. And, and no overshooting, right? Every shot was purposely yeah. photographed. And we ended up- and The reason we cut those scenes is because- 
they didn't tell the story. It made it weaker, mm. you know. So it's like that. That doesn't seem doesn't work. We don't need that. Um, I, I I can kind of relate to the short form. Relate this to short form a little mm-hmm. bit. You write a sixty second spot. You film a sixty second spot, and it's so good that your network, your client wants a 30 second version of it. Mm -hmm. That to me is the greatest challenge. And one of the most exciting things about editing, and I don't get excited about editing, uh, but I really love like the efficiency of like what can't go. Yeah. What cannot go. That's what I have to have here. And I might have to lose something that can't go mm-hmm. and still tell the story. Yeah. And that to me is a super fun task. I remember doing a play. Uh, I was, I was a, 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 an actor in a theater production, the Coal Creek Project, uh, Measured in Labor, with uh, Amy Hubbard, Kara Kemp, the, the Black Box Theater at, in Hamburg. And we were uh, in rehearsals for that film or for that for that theater production. And uh, we, we were probably two weeks in of, of our, of our uh, dress rehearsal or of our rehearsals. And we were all off book, meaning we'd all memorize the script and we were all, we were all running through the whole play Mm -hmm. from beginning to end with props coming in and all that. And the, uh, we were, the, the show was coming in at two hours and, uh, Kara was like, we can't, we can't have a, we can't have, this is not Hamlet. Like we, we have to have, you know, a, a 90 minute, I think it was around that 90 mm-hmm. minute with a, you know, an intermission in between the two 45 minute sections. Uh, and uh, so Kara had us for one rehearsal one day say, pick your scripts back up. You guys are all off book. You know, you know, the, the, you know, the words inside and out, mm-hmm. but we are going to just read through the script. We're just going to read it. No, nothing else. And so we had act the whole cast entered, exited, uh, uh, read their lines, you know, did, did all the set changes. Just all we did was just read through it. We, we, we didn't give any performance. We just read through the whole thing. And Kara walks out after the last scene and hits her stopwatch. She's like, it's 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. You guys are doing an hour and 15 minutes of emoting. Be more efficient with your emoting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like this is this plays thirty minutes too long, and you guys are all great and you're doing great work, but there's a more succinct way to do it. And that's something that I uh, that stuck with me for some reason because it it was that whole idea of again back to you know efficiency of storytelling and being able to tell a story in the most succinct way possible is. More important now than it ever has been with attention spans shrinking, (laughs) shrinking and shrinking. People get bored. They're moving on to the Mm -hmm. next Netflix show. So, you know, the, the, the fact that I'm sure your, your baby, this film at two hours long, I bet it was painstaking to remove 30 or, you know, 20 minutes from it, 25 minutes. It was and it wasn't. Really? You know, there were scenes in there that I loved and I was like, oh, it's so funny though. But it, it didn't help the story. You know, like, oh, that's so funny. But, it, you know, Deborah's like, but it doesn't tell the story. And I'm like, I know you're right. And just, But that's the funniest part of the whole movie. Yeah, I got to give just, it in. It's just funny, you yeah. know. But, but I figured, you know, I mean, I can't remember who said this, though. I mean, it may have been Deborah. It was just like, well, that's that can be for the 
the DVD, the outtakes or whatever. Put mm. them there. It's funny. Put it there. You know, but it's not good. Put for it the in movie, the credits. You know, I mean, I think the trailer has a little bit of a uh, uh, whatever the opposite of a cold open is on it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it come back after the title? Yeah, and give you like a little, a little more, yeah, little more. What's little, happening? Yeah, yeah. That's I really great. like that trailer. I do too. I mean, Deborah did it too. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Before you did this movie and before you came back to Knoxville, I mean, Mm -hmm. your return to Knoxville was obviously intentional. Mm -hmm. And you made that in your 20s, I assume, you came back? Or were you in your 30s? I don't know. Well, I guess what did you do in your- 2014 is when we came back. Okay. So what did you do in your time between working with Scott Colthorpe and coming back to Knoxville, Mm -hmm. which we now know that you did at some point? There's a gap in there that we got to fill in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I- Scott had moved to New York, moved to Brooklyn, and when he left, I think I was, I was still in high school, uh, maybe like fourteen or fifteen. And when I, he moved, yeah, to... when he moved to Brooklyn, okay. And he said, "Hey, if you ever want to come up, just let me know." Well, school ended. I called him and said, "I want to come up." He said, "Cool, come on up." Bought me a plane ticket. I flew up there and spent the summer up there as so, a teenager. Yeah, as a teenager. So. um uh, you know, first day was, um, got in late. He went to his office on fifth Avenue and said, Hey, get on the Q train, get on this train and that train, whatever. And you, you'll, you know, come up the steps and you'll find the office. I'm like, okay, cool. Never been to New York in my life. Had no idea. <laughs> Spent the entire day riding the subway. Cause I had no idea where I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a cell phone, you know, just a Knoxville boy. Yeah. I have no idea. Didn't memorize Scott's number. So I didn't even, couldn't even go to a poem you know, pay phone to call him. I'm just riding the train all literally from like 9 a.m. to like 6 p.m. Just riding the train. <laughs> At one point I ended up in Coney Island. I was like, well, I know I'm, this isn't right. <laughs> this can't be right. Yeah. He said the queue. Well, it kind of ended there, you know, I was like, all right. <laughs> so, you know, that was fun. It it was wild. You know, I learned a lot from him and, and his brother, Craig, you know, just, being there and seeing the productions and being able to go on set. And I did that basically every summer until I graduated. So you Um, went and kind of did an internship with Scott Colthorpe. Yeah. Do you live with him? Yep. Where was it? Fort green or it was at park slope park slope. Mm -hmm. St. Mark's was the streets right off Flatbush. Um, But anyways, and then after high school, I moved up there, still lived with him for a while. Um, And then ended up getting my own place. But we were doing a lot of, I was working with him, you know, and I worked with other companies, you know, as I met people. Yeah. But you're getting paid at this point. Yeah. I was getting paid, you know, sometimes it was going on shoots with him, acing for him, shooting Mm. for him, editing for him, you know. Um, So I got to do what was really nice is being able to go on those shoots. If he was shooting, I was his first. Mm -hmm. And then be able to go back. And a lot of times I would edit the first cut or second cut or whatever. Oh, wow. You know, and then also maybe get the color correct some too. Um, so it was nice to be able to do the entirety of it. Yeah. See the pre-pro with him, go on set, shoot, come back, edit, deliver. Were these commercials or TV shows? They were commercials and also um, promos. He did a lot of promos. Like, like for used, networks? Yeah. Yeah. He did a lot of network stuff. So we did like um, um, uh, Ultimate Fighter promos. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And yeah. He, he did a bunch of like uh, Ink Master stuff. And years ago we did stuff for uh, – um, it was, I can't remember the name of the show, but anyways, like we went to Star Trek convention once and just shot all this stuff for promos and interviewed, you know, a bunch of the actors from Star Trek and all that. Oh, that's cool. So, um, a lot of that stuff and it was great. And then kind of 
you know, built up around, still had my Knoxville contacts. So when Jupiter would come up, they would usually hire me to do something like me and Dom went to Sears and, and not Sears, uh, Macy's mm. and shot for modern marvels, you know, and just whatever they may call me up like, Hey, we need planes landing in the JFK. We got the location. Go shoot it. Okay, cool. So I you would take Scott's it. camera. Uh, a lot of times they'd ship a camera up there. Cause mm. then they were shooting a lot still on tape. Yeah. It's like, um, uh, uh, what's, what's that? Vera, Vera. Yeah, it was a Vera cam. Vera cam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I can't remember if they were digi beta. I think it was digi beta. Wow. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of that stuff. Um, so they kept me busy just by being in New York. I could, you know, just call me basically anything for New York. Um, and Scott kept me really busy and worked on some features, worked on a feature. That's where I met my wife. We were shooting, Scott was actually shooting a feature film. Um, and I was his first and, um, met her there and then, uh, yeah, they just, just kept making stuff. It just never stopped. What was Deborah doing on the, she was, the set? she was, she had just moved up there. So she did first 48 and had done first 48 for the shooter producer for like five years. Where's she from? She's from Minneapolis. Okay. So she started there in the homicide unit in Minneapolis and then she went to Detroit, Charlotte, Louisville. Houston, I think there's somewhere else. She wow. went to a bunch of different cities. Um, and then she did Storm Chasers, and she was actually living in the apartment owned by the uh, Storm Chasers um, EP. Um, he was off somewhere else, so she was kind of subletting, right? So she was actually PAing. She was just taking PA jobs. She just wanted to move there, Was didn't really want to travel a lot. Of, and that's where... So she was house-sitting. Yeah, basically. In New York. Yeah. <laughs> In the nicest neighborhood. <laughs> um, where was she? The uh, West Side? No, it was right off of the promenade. Where, I don't know where that is. It's uh, basically like a broad, you know, a boardwalk that overlooks the river in Brooklyn there. Oh, I like can't, uh, can't uh, Long Island City area? I, I can't remember the neighborhood. Okay. It's, I mean, it's right on the border of Brooklyn. You get a, you such a city, nice view yeah. of the city from there yeah, with it's the amazing. East River in between mm-hmm. you. It's gorgeous. I have a photo in my house. From the Pepsi Cola sign yeah. that's right there in Long Island City, it's so like it's just it's the spot, man. Oh yeah, to to get a good view of the yeah. city, it's beautiful. Yeah, but she was paing and um, you know ended up on this movie, and uh, she ended up being the boom operator. Believe it no or not, no kidding. Yeah. So she you know knew how to hold a boom and point <laughs> it where it needs to go. Well, she'd worked in uh, in true crime television. She knew how to do every job. Yeah, on set, yeah. Especially sure. you know with first forty eight, there's only two of you in a city, and you do the audio, you do the camera work, you do the producing, you do the releases. You're on call twenty four seven. You go to the crime scene. You know you you do it. It's you and you basically you and your partner. So you know? be honest when you when you saw her holding the boom up there mm-hmm. and and keeping it out of the shot. Did you say? I'm going to have to wife that up. Basically. Is that basically, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were married in uh, within uh, nine months. Really? Yes. And we did not have kids then, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, because the nine months. Yeah. You got to qualify that. ask. Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, did you guys uh, get married in New York? No, we got married here. Did you really? Yeah. Why? Because your family lived here? Uh, all my family was here. And I think uh, a lot of my family... Um, at the time were older grandparents and great uncles mm-hmm. and her family um, was more able to uh, travel. Ah, gotcha. Cool. So um, we did it here. Cool. But you met in New York and how mm-hmm. long did you guys live there? You know, once we met, not very long. Really? Yeah. Maybe a year. 
No, no. Because we left, oh, golly, it's probably three or four months after wow. that. Yeah. Was Scott still traveling back and forth from Knoxville to uh, Park Slope at the time? He was mostly in New York at that time. Okay. Yeah. And then um, Deborah got a job, an opportunity in San Francisco after we got married um, and decided, well, we've never been there. So we went there and lived there for a couple of years. Uh, in true crime? Was she no, working? she was actually working for Weather Underground. Oh, the app? Yep. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. She was doing all their um, video, and she shot a bunch of documentaries for them. And, oh, cool. Um, did some, like, like commercial spots. entertainment type stuff? Kind of, yeah. You know, and, like, weather documentaries. Yeah. You know, go and meet a scientist, and she went out in Death Valley and shot for a week and stuff cool. like that. So they, they became their own – Weather Underground became a content channel of some sort. Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're like, man, I'm from Knoxville. Um, I, I, you know, I rode the I rode the train all day once in New York. Uh, that's the second most expensive city in America to live mm-hmm. in. Let's try out the first. Yeah, is that what 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 yeah. your uh, the next thing on the docket yeah. for you is uh, move to San Francisco? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I mean, luckily, you know, I just bummed off Scott for a long time. Yeah, um, but did you guys have a? Uh, did you guys have a? Uh, uh, were you the beneficiary of of the kindness of strangers in San Francisco too? Or uh, no? No, no. I, didn't, I didn't know anybody there. <laughs> so, so no. you got to pay the real rent. Yeah, when yeah. you moved out there. Yeah, it was um, uh, not cheap. I'm sure. You know, was it um, kind of on a whim for you too? Did you have any opportunities lined up? I had no opportunities out there. How long did it take you to get your feet wet? Well, I only did a very f- little work out there because what I learned about San Francisco, you're so close to L.A. Everything in San Francisco is corporate work. Mm, for all the tech companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got everybody's there, right? I mean, my wife's company was right next to um, Salesforce. So so you when know? you say close to LA, I mean it's it's 300 miles. Like it's it's, you know, it's it's far away, but but you mean like, that there's not really going to be you know, if somebody's going to shoot a feature in California, they're going to shoot it in LA instead yeah. of San Francisco. And the companies that had the need or whoever had the need to shoot in San Francisco were corporate entities. Yeah. Is that, was, is that what the market looks like yes, there? It was all corporate. I mean, and if they were going to shoot whatever exterior or street shots they needed, they'd just send their LA crew to do it. You know, they wow. weren't going to hire anybody there. I mean, that's really? a, that's a sh- short run, yeah. you know? Um, so there was not a lot, to be honest. I mean, really corporate work and there were some grip houses and stuff, but once again, most of their stuff was corporate and commercial work. So you didn't do a lot there? I did not. I did not. I ended up- What'd you do? Well, I ended up Just getting on busy. a show that was called Wild West Alaska, and I ended up going to Alaska. R- right after getting married? Yeah. I spent okay. most of my time up there, unfortunately, um, going back and forth. And I was um, the Phantom operator, so shooting all the high-speed stuff. Hell yeah. And I was also the B-roll guy. So was that Phantom Flex yet? Or? It was, no. It was a pretty- I think it was the gold. Okay. So we're talking like a thousand frames a second? Yeah, something like that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty early on, but it was still at the time a $100,000 camera or whatever right. it was. Um, did Did you know Ed Richardson at this time? Yes, I did. Okay. So I, yeah, I knew it. Ed from when I was a kid because he worked with Scott all the time. Yes. Yeah. AC. Yeah. I, I met Ed was kind of the first guy in Knoxville that I met and was like, oh, AC. Being a camera assistant, a first assistant camera is a is a very important role, mm-hmm. and it 
goes, it's an inch wide and a mile deep. Yeah. As much as you want to get into that, you can. Because didn't he ultimately write the firmware for the for the Phantom Flex yeah. working at Ableton mm-hmm. after a while? Like that's that's bananas. I yeah. mean, that's like computer programming times a hundred. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. It's a thousand frame a second camera. Which you know the nicest camera even on the market today a, a a cinema a cinema body that you get you know 240 frames is kind of where they're living yeah. right like mm-hmm. in that world and so this is this is the phantom camera these you know Shark Week is the big one that mm-hmm. I guess that that gets all the all the uh, juice that Phantom gets all the juice from because you get to see these sharks eat in the slowest of slow motion. <laughs> Uh, th- these were not necessarily cameras. They were computers yeah. processing power attached to a sensor ultimately that yeah. was, that was gathering all the light and bringing the image in, but then it's processing all of this enormous 4k information at just the speeds that would, would melt mm-hmm. any computer, <laughs> any yeah. consumer computer out there. Well, and as you know, like, it takes a lot of light, right? Yeah. Um, even that, when we were That'll bright. be a tough one to explain on a podcast. Well, but yeah, it, it takes a lot of light yeah. for a thousand frames a second. Yeah. Well, it was just funny is, you know, like we're day exterior, bright sun, and we have mirror boards yeah. hitting things. To light stuff we need with. more light. Yeah. You know? Um, and the Phantom Operator, especially then, was kind of a stressful job, right? Because we're, we're, it was about a gun shop and they're blowing stuff up and shooting cannons or whatever. So when you blow something up, you get one, one go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like shooting a live event. Yeah. And be if, there. <laughs> yeah. And the way the camera works is, you know, it's got this, you know, the system in it where it is not saving every time you shoot it. You right. You have to do your ins and outs and yep. say save. And if the camera power is off during that, the footage is gone. Yeah. You know? I mean, so it, it was a little stressful. The first day I did it, it was it was rough. You know, really? like we had some problems and stuff. But after that, I never had another problem with it. It, I don't know what was going on, but we I can't remember it to be honest. I think I ended up calling Richardson and be like, "Uh, what's going on?" <laughs> well, you know what happened. You know why you never had any trouble after uh, after that first day is because you're smart and you're diligent and you were never going to let that fucking happen no, again. Never. I guarantee you are yeah. not going to let that stress back into your life. It happens I, once. Yeah. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this won't happen again. But we got it and it all worked out. But, you know, I did the B-roll stuff. So it was great. They gave me a vehicle and I drove around all over Alaska by myself shooting pretty stuff and fishing a little bit. By a little <laughs> bit, maybe a lot. <laughs> There might be some time lapses of me fly fishing in the show. <laughs> ah, I love it. That's kind of what my uh, what my if you ask me to go shoot tourism stuff, there might be a tripod involved in in, yeah. in me casting at the lens out, mm-hmm. the, you know, absolutely, or parking the drone up in the air and, mm-hmm. and getting a few casts. Yeah, in. oh, absolutely. Uh, but it was fun. So, you know? so was that the, the after you were done with that show in Alaska? Did you come back to to San Francisco and and have some downtime, or was it back to Knoxville for you guys? It, you know, the only downtime we really had was the last couple of weeks before we decided to move. Why'd you decide to move? Um, I think we wanted to be closer to some family mm-hmm. in Knoxville, and I was traveling so much. Like I yeah. was, I was never there. You know, yeah. if I wasn't doing that show, I was doing 
field work, interviewing, going to prisons for true crime shows and doing interviews with prisoners or victims' families or whatever, Mm. you know, hundreds and hundreds of those. And then, um, so I wasn't home. You know, it was basically Deborah lived in San Francisco and I was living in a hotel. Yeah. Um, so we decided, well, that's, this is kind of miserable. Yeah. Unsustainable. Yeah. If you want to have any kind of relationship. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I hate this. Um, yeah. and I knew people in Knoxville and those shows I was doing, were doing were with Jupiter. And I thought, well, why can't I do the recreations? Like, why am I, I don't need to be in the field. I'd rather do the recreations anyway. So I told him, I said, I'm moving to Knoxville. And I mm-hmm. moved to Knoxville and they put me right back to work. I mean, early on in 2005, I had done recreations for them mm. back in the day when we were doing for biography. Is this when you were living in New York? Or I was you... living in Knoxville. You still? Okay. At that point. Yeah. It okay. was like a short point of time. I basically graduated high school and started working for them. Yeah. I just didn't tell them how old I was. <laughs> yeah. And and so recreations are in, in this documentary style of, 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 uh, storytelling Mm -hmm. are maybe you hear, you know, you're interviewing a detective for instance, and Mm -hmm. he's talking about a crime that was committed. And so then the company, uh, the production company will go back and recreate those scenes. Right. Correct. So they're not, they're not necessarily, they're they're meant to portray the event happening, Mm -hmm. but it's not the actual event. happening. Exactly. It's not the bank cam footage of it actually going (laughs) down. It's, it's a recreation of the bank robbery. Yeah. It's whatever they can't fill with archives. So whatever the mm. real material is, they don't have that real material, we're recreating that material. Yeah. And so that is, to me, because um, I, I did work on a little bit of that early on in my career, that to me is is it can actually be um, a little bit more uh, artistically satisfying mm-hmm. than shooting an interview or B-roll of a rushing stream or, yeah. you know, a traffic light or yeah. whatever it is. Because you do get to it, – it does have kind of a, a narrative tinge to it. You know yeah. what the story is. You don't get the benefit of dialogue. But again, there's your guardrails. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to tell this story, you know, visually only. And you have the tools there to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and each series that I got to do is different, right? And as they grew more comfortable with me, they let me play a little more, mm-hmm. you know, like – uh, we had a series called Killer Couples. We did nine seasons of it. It's still going now. I'm just, yeah. I'm not, I moved on to other shows. Yeah. Um, but early on, they were putting uh, color in the edit, right? Uh, make that scene blue or green, or they just really like this kind of uh, color format. Well, we decided, why are they doing it? Why don't we do it? So we brought in colored tube kinos and started making that color in camera. That's awesome. You know, and it made their life easier in post. And yeah. it was brought to our attention. Like this is, this speeds up our editing process. Right. And know? it was just another rental for you, right? Yeah. You just had to rent a different color light bulb to put in exactly. the Kino. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, it was great. And, you know, and then we moved on to like ATL homicide that does have dialogue. It's like, it's the closest mm-hmm. I've done to a narrative television show. Right. You know, dude, that stuff looks awesome. Did so. Sam Thomas work on some of that with you? Um, he did not. He didn't. Mm-mm. Okay. I, he showed it to me. Yeah. He was showing me some of your work, I think. Yeah. And I was like, this is a different take. How is it different than a regular uh, kind of true crime yeah. storytelling? How is it? I, I love that show. I mean, it's it's more relaxed. 
and the real detectives, and I was fortunate enough to be able to start at the beginning, right? Set the look of the interview, hang out with them. And they they actually appeared on First 48. So we knew a lot of the kind of the same people, okay. you know? So that kind of helped too. Yeah. And the thing is, I've been around a lot of detectives, a lot. And these guys are great, you know, in the top five best detectives. You know, they're smart. They don't mess around. And they come off on camera that way. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and the are way they, they built for it, are they just like built for the camera? Yeah, I think they really are. And the yeah. way they talk is how they really talk. They're not putting on this persona that's of awesome. like, because you watch them and you're like, who are these guys? You know, yeah. they're kind of wild, but they're super smart. You know, Vince and Quinn are just super smart. And um, I have a lot of respect for them and I really enjoy working with them, you know, and I don't do the interviews anymore because. Um, it was a lot of days in Atlanta. I think the first season was like 52 days of shooting in Atlanta. Do you have you local know? crews shoot there? No, it was me. <laughs> yeah. But now is it? Local? Now it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now it is. There's I, plenty of talent down there. Well, I trained in our AC. Oh, um, cool. And I was like, he was great. And I pushed for him because I'm like, he knows the style. He helped me set it up. Like, and I'd start letting him shoot some of the interviews, you know, and I'm like, you need to go with him. And they did. And he's been doing them ever since. So. The only time we didn't do it was during the pandemic. We brought them here mm. and, you know, shot quarantine style of, you know, like everybody had to do. Yeah, that was hard. Yeah. I'm glad that's over with. Yes. I mean, we seem to be uh, back in action. I, I have moments. Do you have moments on set where you're like, oh, man, we're close to each other. We're not wearing masks. This I do. Is, I do. This is uh, both unnerving and nice at yeah. the same time. Yeah, I, but, you know, we shot so much through the pandemic, I ended up, you know, it just, I don't know, it was it was a bizarre time, you it know? Was. It was a, a hard time of shooting and being out and just doing your thing, and but you just did it, you know? We just kept pressing the button. <laughs> so I think we've filled in all the gaps in your, uh, in, in your career, haven't we? And we, we, we went to New York, we went to San Francisco, we went to Alaska, we got back to, you know, your Jupiter work and your, yeah. and your film work to fill in that gap. So I guess my, uh, one, uh, uh, one of my last questions would be what's, uh, what's in the hopper? You know, I think next is, you know, getting this film out in the world, you know, that's coming up quick. Do you I have mean, any screenings planned or anything like that? I don't right now. Um, we're working on that and there are some things that are happening. Um, even though we have a release May 30th, there's still opportunities that are happening right now, you know, that are, could be who knows what, I know they're at another film market right now, so we'll see what happens. Um, I'd love to do a local screening and, and I think in the future we're going to, Cool. I feel like I just need to get, I've been waiting for almost two years (laughs) to get this thing out here. I'm just. I know when May 30th comes, you know, it'll be like, oh, we did do it. (laughs) Hmm. You know, it's still kind of like, all right, I wonder if this is going to happen. It is. I mean, it's out there. It's pre-order. I mean, the the Blu-ray is made, you know, but it's still like, okay, um, I'll feel better after May 30th. So what do you think the best way for a film like this to succeed is? I mean, I just think about like, you know, nobody knew what Tiger King was until everybody was talking about mm-hmm. tiger king is that the best way to to 
to uh, get your get your stuff out there is just make such a good product that people can't not talk about it. Yeah. Or is are there marketing efforts that have to be put behind a film? I mean, I know there are. Mm-hmm. You see them every day. Yeah. You know. But what's the kind of strategy for making sure that the eyeballs and the right eyeballs land on the film? Yeah. I, I think first off, making a good film is the most important thing. Yeah. You, you just make the best that you can yeah. with what you have. And yeah. I think that's what we did. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the next step is, you know, marketing and just telling people, telling everybody, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I think it's challenging um, for any film right now, but especially an independent film to get out there and really be pushed hard, you know, by marketing and people to, to put money into um, you know, an unknown bunch of people from Knoxville <laughs> that, that made a good film, but it's still, I'm sure, it's scary for them, just like it's scary for us, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, well, let's see how this goes, you know, but we're getting there. So, so do you, you know, being, I'm sure it's like anything else there, the, the, you know, less track record you have, the bigger risk it is mm-hmm. for, an entity to put efforts behind you to yeah. push something. And so you're probably on the steepest hill you're ever going to be on in yeah. the feature, in the feature film world. But it just takes, you know, uh, it seems like you did the right thing, which is make the best thing possible. You focused on the right mm-hmm. thing first. You didn't focus on, Oh, how are we going to market this film? Let me write a film that's very marketable. Yeah. You wanted to you wrote a film and made a film that you wanted to make and you you made it the best you could. So, it it seems like that it seems to me like that is the right order of operations mm, yeah. to to get this done and then to get and then once it, you know, once it gets out there, it, it Hopefully it appeals yeah. to and, people. And I think it will because, I mean, it's a dark comedy. It's fun. And it's, you know, like you said, it's the steepest hill. But I think it'll be after this, we're over it. Right. Yeah. And I think the next one, it just gets better and better. Because just even after this film, I watch it and I go, wow, this is, I'm really proud of this film. But I watch it and I know, I know more now. Yeah. You know, even after 17 18 years doing this stuff. I mean, it's still my first feature. It's different. Yeah. You know, it's not what I usually do. Um, but I took the things I learned from what I usually do and put it into this. Um, and I think it's just building an opportunity and showing what Knoxville crews can accomplish with, you know, by just making it happen. That's the part that excites me so much about it Mm -hmm. is that it, it, to me seems like, you know, a, a showcase and, you know, maybe even a bit of a coming out party of what we can make now, Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, not to, not, not to hitch, hitch my, you know, wagon to your horse, but I mean, it, it does, it, it's, it's a showcase piece that can show what we're capable of as a, as a filmmaking Mm -hmm. community, because, I'm 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 hope I'm not delivering this news to anybody, but LA and New York and Atlanta are not the only markets that can make good stuff. Yeah. You know. And I think your film has has proven that. And I think that should it do well that you are which I think it should, you're gonna have um 
you know, an easier time in the room next time, you yeah. know, and maybe a little more, uh, maybe, maybe a little more freedom to, to, to stretch your legs a little bit, uh, creatively or otherwise. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that, uh, it, it becomes, you know, it, it becomes as appreciated, uh, or the, the appreciation for the film becomes commensurate with the work that you put into it because it, I, it sounds to me like it was a hell of a lot of work and it was guided in the right direction, um, for the right reasons. Yeah. It, it has been a journey and I've, you know, I've enjoyed it even when it was hard and tough and getting up early and I, it's the most enjoyable shoot I've ever done. I am so glad to hear that other, uh, which, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, opposite side of that coin would be, I made a feature and I never want to do it again. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm ready for the next one. Well, I'm extremely happy for you. And, um, I, I hope to see it out in the world, getting the appreciation that it deserves. And, uh, I'm, 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 proud not just of you as a person but of how you've represented the the filmmaking community uh, around here and my friends that you know worked on it so i appreciate you and i appreciate you even more coming to to sit <laughs> and uh and and indulge my curiosity and telling me about it so thanks for doing it yeah i appreciate you having me here it's been I've loved every second of this too. <laughs> Me too. Well, let's do it again sometime. That'd be great. And uh, we'll do a catch up here in a little bit and see uh, it, it, it. Do a little recap on on the uh, uh, on the reaction to it. Yes. Yes. Right. Thanks so much for doing it, man. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. See ya.